Okay. All right. I can hear. I can hear what you're saying. So, Calvary, you can hear me. All right. Great. Well, let's begin. Good morning, and welcome back to Sunday school. I know it feels like forever since we've actually done this. It's very good to be back with you. Good to see you. We're back into our Answers Bible Curriculum, second edition from Answers in Genesis. This survey, the Old and New Testaments, with an apologetic emphasis. Where were we last we met? You may remember that we were in Genesis. We had just transitioned from the life of Abraham to the life of Isaac. And we saw specifically how God dramatically provided a wife for Isaac via Rebekah. Just the perfect wife for Isaac. Just an ideal wife in so many ways. With this marriage, God was moving forward his plan of redemption. We already have some significant promises presented to us in Genesis that we've looked at. Genesis 3.15, the promise of the seed of the woman. And then what's part of the Abrahamic promise? That in him and in his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So God is moving forward his plan of redemption, the plan of restoration via a coming seed. Now we're going to see as we move through the scriptures, we're going to continue to see how God moves that plan forward. In unit five, what we're in now, we're going to see how this plan progresses through the lives of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. By the end of unit five, we will be in Egypt, and so will Israel. Israel will be in Egypt. It'll be multiplying under that under those circumstances of blessing provided by God through Joseph. And that's where we're going to end unit five. We've got some important instructions, though, to hear before we get there. Some important lessons to learn. And that starts with today's lesson, Esau sells his birthright. Really looking forward to talking about this with you. Let's pray before we go on. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet. We need it to light the way, to give us wisdom, to show us what reality truly is. Pray that you'd help me be able to explain this well now. And I pray, God, that we be transformed by it. We are not here simply to learn knowledge. Lord, we are here to be changed by your word. So I pray that you would accomplish that. Jesus, exalt yourself today. And God, I pray that we'd fall more in love with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the most painful experiences in life is when you make when you willingly make a terrible exchange. Give a second here. There we go. You willingly make a terrible exchange and you only realize it later. You may notice a certain logo on the screen, and perhaps you've heard the following story. A man named Ronald Wayne, he was a former colleague of Steve Jobs. You know Steve Jobs of Apple fame. Ronald Wayne once had a 10% stake in the Apple company. But he sold that stake in 1976 for $800. So 10% stake in Apple, he sold it in 1976 for $800. Since that time, as you know, Apple has done quite well. So guess how much Ronald Wayne's stake would be worth today? 10% of Apple. A lot of money. Actually, $83 billion. $83 billion, and he sold it for 
Was that a good exchange? <laughs> well, in hindsight, definitely not. And I'm sure that must sting. Ronald Wade's still alive today. And that must sting. If I were him, I wouldn't want to have any fruit in my house to remind me of that choice that I made to sell that stock or to sell that, that stake. But <laughs> how could he have known? If, if a few variables in life had turned out differently, his, his choice may have been smart but it turned out to be a terrible exchange. But in contrast to this, what if there was a situation in life where we knew that there was a guaranteed investment that would pay off in the future, pay off big time, but it would just require a little bit of discomfort in the present, in the short term. Would it not be wise to endure that temporary discomfort so that you can get that abounding guaranteed payout in the end? Well, of course, but well, I think you can see where I'm going with this. Isn't this exactly what the Christian life is? As Christians or as a Christian, you invest the discomfort, the difficulty of giving up your life in this world. For what? Or for the sake of an abounding future with God, for everlasting bliss with him. You invest the daily difficulty and discipline and suffering that is obedience to Christ. And you do this in order to inherit lasting joy, to obtain blessing, the blessing of walking with your Lord. In a way, it's like an investment. But how many Christians ignore the guaranteed return of God and they withdraw their investment early for the sake of some fleeting pleasure or sin? They sacrifice God's more lasting blessings, even damaging their relationships with others, their health, their finances, and most acutely, the satisfaction of walking in fellowship with God. Give that up. Even worse, some turn their backs on Jesus altogether, and they give up everlasting life. They give up true treasure with God for a few passing days of self-willed indulgence on the earth. Now, is, is not this kind of spiritual exchange a much more terrible deal than even what Ronald Wayne experienced? In the passage we have to look at today, we're going to look at the poster child of this kind of terrible spiritual exchange. A person even rivaling what Judas experienced. He's another guy with a terrible exchange. We're going to see today Esau as, an, as the poster child of the terrible exchange. But he's not the only one. We're also going to see Isaac and Jacob illustrating the same kind of, not to the same degree, but the same kind of short-sightedness that comes from not going in God's way. But through it all, meanwhile, God will be faithful. God will be accomplishing his will, his plan, using even the sin and folly of this ancient patriarchal family to accomplish his will. So please open your Bibles to our passage, which we find in Genesis 25. Genesis 25, we're going to be looking at the latter part of the chapter, verses 19 to 34. We'll be using as we do our inductive Bible study method. And we'll observe the text in two parts. We'll read and observe, 
and then we'll proceed to interpretation and application. So let's just start with verses 19 to 26 first. Follow along with me. Genesis 25, verses 19 to 26. I guess I should turn there too. Verse 19. Now these are the records of the generation of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord. That's the name Yahweh there. Isaac prayed to Yahweh on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And Yahweh answered him. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of Yahweh. Yahweh said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came forth red, all over, like a hairy garment. They named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Okay, so step one of our Bible study method after reading is we make basic observations of the text. So let's do that. Notice what we learn here about Rebecca. She is God's perfect provision of a wife for Isaac. But verse 21 says she's barren. This was what God perfectly arranged. Rebecca is not able to have children. Now, wait a second. Isn't this a little bit of deja vu? Who else had this problem? Sarah did. Abraham's wife. And we're going to see. Jacob's wife, one of Jacob's wives later, Rachel, she will have the same problem. Seems to be a theme in the patriarchs. Now, interestingly, Abraham and Rachel, they respond to their barrenness by actually giving their handmaids to their husband. Say, I'm going to obtain children through her. Well, how do Isaac and Rebekah respond? Notice we, the text keys in on Isaac and it says, Isaac prays to God. And God, how does he respond? He hears Isaac's prayer. But for how long did Isaac pray? Notice we're told in the earlier part of the passage, verse 20, that Isaac is 40 years old when he marries Rebekah. But how old is Isaac when God answers Isaac's prayer? And twins are born to the couple. And verse 26 tells us Isaac is 60 years old. So how much time went by? 20 years, 20 years, 20 years of praying and waiting and being barren. Really, God? Yes, that's right. And by the way, this is, if Abraham was paying attention, he would be like, hey, that's nothing. Remember, he waited 25 years after God had given him the promise. And he had already been waiting before that time. He waited decades for, for Isaac. But this is something else that God did with Isaac and Rebekah. 
But notice what prompts Rebecca's question in verse 22. She realizes that the, there's some struggling going on in her womb. And actually, the Hebrew word for struggling here is quite violent. The word could be translated smashing or crashing. Could you imagine if your pregnancy or your wife's pregnancy could only be described as crashing within the womb? That must have been a very difficult pregnancy. And remember, Rebecca doesn't have any modern medicine or ultrasound machines to help her get through it or to even understand what's going on. She must have been in great pain and in extreme worry. She doesn't understand what's going on inside of her. So what does she do? Well, like Isaac, notice that she goes to God. Text says she goes to inquire of Yahweh, to ask God to reveal what is going on. And this is something that she could do in those days. And what does God do? God responds to her cry. He answers her, but in a way that's a little puzzling. Verse 23, God gives a prophecy to Rebekah that she probably would not have understood right away. Notice what verse 23 reveals about what's going on. It says, in her womb are two nations or two peoples, and they will separate from one another. Indeed, they're already in the process of separating. One will be stronger than the other. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, this prophecy implies that Rebecca has twins. She might not have realized this. She and Isaac might not have realized this until the twins were actually born, because notice in verse 24, it says, Behold, there are twins in her womb. Whenever you see the word behold, it's kind of like the, the narrative. It's like, it must have put you in the situation. It's like, look, aha. So maybe they were surprised. Maybe they're like, oh, that's why. This was what was going on all along. Twins were in her womb the whole time, and they had been struggling. It was related to this prophecy. And notice who the older twin is. The one who's born first, that's Esau, verse 25 says. It says he was born red and hairy. And this redness could refer to his skin tone or his hair color. And his name appears to have something to do with hairiness, though we don't know exactly what Esau means. The way it's written here, it sounds like it has something to do with hairiness. And he must have been quite hairy. I don't know if you've seen babies that have a good amount of hair. Uh, nothing like what Esau apparently was. If he could be described as, as if he were covered all over with a hairy garment, this must have been one of the hairiest babies. His parents must have been quite surprised. Esau's the older. He comes out first. And who's the younger one? Born second, Jacob. Verse 26 says, Jacob comes out with his hand, grabbing Esau's heel. Now, this is not exactly normal. And this must have been a little surprising to his parents. And it results in Jacob's name. Jacob sounds like the Hebrew word for heel, or heel grabber, heel clutcher. But that phrase, heel grabber, heel clutcher, has another meaning in Hebrew, a more figurative meaning, not exactly complimentary. What does Jacob mean? Or figuratively, it means supplanter, trickster, even betrayer. Someone who is always at your heels trying to trip you up. And that's not exactly the meaning of Jacob, but it sounds... It's part of one of the meanings of what Jacob could mean. 
So we come to the end of verse 26, and it's a crazy 20 years. We've got barrenness, prayer, difficult pregnancy, prophecy, two kids whose birth is really odd. We've got one extremely hairy kid and one who's grabbing the other's heel. And they've been in conflict in the womb, or in conflict out of the womb. I'm sure Isaac and Rebecca were relieved to see, wow, pregnancy's come to an end. We've got two healthy kids. Must have been a sense of expectation about these children and their future. This is not normal pregnancy. We've got the prophecy. We've got what we've seen. What does the future hold for these boys? We're going to see how expectations of the future begin to be fulfilled as we look now at verses 27 to 34. Verses 27 to 34, let's read that now. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. But Becca loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please, let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I am about to die. So what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Hmm. Let's observe some more here. Boys grow up. What does Esau become? A skillful hunter, a man of the open fields. He likes to be in the wilds. Jacob, what does he grow up to be? He says a peaceful man living in tents. He's more civilized than his brother. He works as a pastoralist, lives in tents, raises livestock. Now, verse 28 gives us another key detail. Each of the parents favors a different child. Isaac loves Esau, but notice why. It says because Isaac had a taste for game, that is for the meat that comes from hunted animals. That's a somewhat crass reason for liking one kid over the other, isn't it? I like him better because he brings me food I like. Okay, Isaac. By the way, this isn't the first time in the Bible that food has led people into trouble. Adam and Eve, hello? And it won't be the last time. Isaac loves Esau, but Rebecca, we're told, loves Jacob. Why does she love Jacob? We don't know. Could be for good reason. Maybe not. But each parent favors a different kid more. Is this a recipe for family harmony? I don't think so. Well, starting from verse 29, we hear about a certain momentous day. Jacob's at home. He just cooked some stew. And Esau comes in from the open field and he's famished. He's exhausted. So Esau asks for a swallow of the red stew. Literally a drink. Hey, can I have a bit of that red stuff? This red stuff here. Notice there's the color red again. And that's why we have the little parenthetical note about Esau's other name. He's called Edom. And Edom is a word for red. Does that name ring a bell? Edom? And what have for the people of Israel? Because there was a people called Edom. A nation called Edom. The Edomites. They were the descendants of Esau. 
and they lived on the southeast border of the land of Canaan. As Esau, I mean, as Israel journeys through the wilderness, they encounter Edom. And Edom is not friendly. They will become enemies of Israel. But back to Esau, he asks for a little drink of this stew. And Jacob, being the loving brother that he is, he says, sure, Esau, have as much as you want. Here's some bread on the side. No, that's not Jacob's response. Instead, peaceful, civilized Jacob says, first, give me your birthright. Hmm. Think the birthright issue has been much on Jacob's mind as the younger brother? This is a little cold, right? It's a little mercenary. I want to give you some stew. First, give me your birthright. But, I mean, maybe he's just joking. I mean, no one would be short-sighted enough to give up a birthright for a bowl of stew. I mean, right? I mean, the birthright is the birthright. You say, oh, what's so great about the birthright? Well, let's remember the context, the society in which this is taking place. The birthright represents family leadership. It's uh, representative of an extra inheritance. It's representative of greater honor and preeminence, uh, the blessing, the special blessing of the father. Birthright is quite valuable. It belongs to the firstborn, but no fool, I mean, no person would be fool enough to just offer the birthright away, right? I mean, especially not for some stew, right? Not for a single meal. But then look at verse 32. Esau says, behold, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? Really, Esau, you're going to give up the birthright? Is it because he's about to die? Is he really about to die? Well, remember, just because he says that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Doesn't necessarily mean it's true. We'll come back to whether that is true when we talk about interpretation. But he says he's about to die, and he indicates his willingness to make this exchange. So Jacob forces him to swear. Esau swears, and he sells his birthright to Jacob. Say, can you really do that? Well, apparently you can. There are a few other ancient records of people selling, giving up their birthright. This is what Esau does. And what does he get for it? Verse 34 says he gets some bread and he gets some lentil stew. Lentil stew? For a birthright? I don't know if any of you have ever had lentil stew before. I mean, it's good, but I don't know if it's great. This for a birthright? Did Esau even enjoy it? Notice the text becomes very curt all of a sudden after this exchange. It says, Esau ate, he drank, he rose up, he went on his way. No gladness expressed, no remorse expressed, no thought at all. Just consumption and departure. And then we get the concluding sentence. Thus Esau despised his birth. This is a summary statement applied or given by our author, Moses. But don't misunderstand the word despise here. In English, we often think of despise as like absolute loathing and hatred. This is not Esau saying, I hate my birthright so much, I want to spit on it and throw it on the ground and just jump up and down on it. Good riddance to that awful bird. Uh, that's not the sense here. That's not the sense of this Hebrew word. The word despise here is of the sense of treating with contempt, treating lightly. Treating of no account. So this is like Esau saying, birthright, schmirthright. So what? You actually care about that kind of thing? Fine, I'll give you the birthright. Just give me some stew. 
That's what Moses is observing. Esau demonstrated he had contempt for his birthright. So we've made some basic observations, important observations. Now we go to step two of our method for studying the Bible, and that's interpretation. We want to use our observations to see if we can answer different questions about our passage and get at the meaning, the main message of Moses. So I've got a number of questions for us to consider. First, why did God lead Isaac and Rebekah into 20 years of difficulty? Why did he bring that season upon them? Well, text doesn't say. What could be the only reason? God decided that it was wise. God decided that it was good. God decided that it was just. God always has a reason for what he does. We don't hear specifically what those reasons are, but we know it's part of what, who he is. He's good, wise, and just, and he was doing that for Isaac and Rebekah. Certainly, he was teaching them to trust in him. He was reminding them that he is in total control. He's sovereign over the womb. He's sovereign over all of life. And he's teaching that to us as well, just as he was teaching it to Israel. He was using these difficult circumstances to bring them good via the form of teaching them, growing them in faith. It's not the only thing he was doing, of course, but that was one of the main things. And by the way, God will do that with you too. I think many of you know that. God is going to bring you through hard circumstances for good, wise, and just reasons that he will not explain to you. Part of what he's doing, though, is teaching you he's in control and that you need to trust him. So be ready for that. Now, another question. What exactly was God prophesying in verse 23 with this whole two nations, older and younger? Well, a couple different things. Certainly, he was revealing that these children and the descendants of them would be in conflict. They are separating from one another. They're two whole nations. They're fighting against each other. But it's not only that, because he says the older will serve the younger, that Esau, the older, will serve Jacob, the younger, but also their peoples will be in the same relationship. Their peoples will be in conflict, but one will be stronger than the other. That is, the younger will have authority over the older. Remember, we, those two peoples, who are they? That's Edom and Israel. God is foretelling that the people of Edom will be subject to the people of Israel. Now, by the way, that's, of course, very unnormal. This whole thing is very unnormal. Older doesn't normally serve the younger. I mean, think of your own families. Did you grow up with the younger having control and authority over the older ones? <laughs> Maybe in a younger person's dreams, but no, that's not how it works. But this is what God declared would come to pass, not just for Jacob and Esau, but for their descendants. Well, is this true? Did this come to pass? Well, we already see from the second part of our passage how it's coming true in the lives of Jacob and Esau. Esau's already given up his birthright. He is being supplanted. He is coming under the control of the younger. But we'll see even more in the lessons to come how this is fully accomplished. And even with their descendants, we read on in the Old Testament, we see indeed, not only do Israel and Edom frequently come into conflict, they often go to war with each other. Who is it that comes out on top? Israel. 
the younger people, so to speak. Israel will often put Edom into subjection. In the days of David and Solomon, Edom will be a subject kingdom. It will often rebel too, because God has to chasten Israel, chasten Judah, but frequently Edom is put into subjection, just as God foretold. Actually, even more interestingly, in the last days of the earth, when Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom in Israel, Obadiah says that Edom once again will be placed into subjection. There will continue to be conflict between the descendants of Edom and the descendants of Israel, and Edom ultimately will be dominated by Israel under Messiah. Of course, there's a lot more we could say about that, but I'm just letting you know, this is a very far-reaching prophecy from God here in Genesis 25, 23. Now, here's another question, though. Was it wrong for Isaac to favor Esau? I mean, the prophecy is that the younger one is going to be the one in authority. So was it wrong for, him to, for Isaac to favor Esau? Well, it's a little hard to say since we don't have all the details. And the prophecy didn't exactly say, so here's what you should do based on what I just told you. But certainly it looks a little shady, the way Moses writes it, that Isaac favors Esau simply because of food. I mean, food is hardly a good reason to take a stance contradicting what God has prophesied. I mean, that's it, Isaac. And later on, we will see that Isaac, he will try and give God's special blessing to Esau and not Jacob, despite what God has foretold. So there does seem to be something a little off with Isaac's thinking. Again, it's a little hard to, to judge with the few details we have, but I would go on the side of thinking that Isaac is doing something wrong here. He's acting contrary to God's will and for the sake of food. I believe he's a negative, negative example in this. And we'll say more about that later. Another question. Was Esau really about to die? No, I don't think so. And people who are actually about to die from hunger or thirst, they don't act like Esau does. I'm actually reminded of a little line from Shakespeare. <laughs> one of the plays, one of the characters says, oh, I can't tell you the news because I'm out of breath. And the other character responds, How canst thou tell me thou art out of breath when thou hast breath to tell me that thou art out of breath? Kind of the same thing with Esau here. If you're really about to die, I don't think you'd be talking the way you are. Besides, I'm sure the other servants could, there are many servants and slaves in Isaac's household inherited from Abraham. They would have been able to take care of Esau. So he really wasn't that desperate in the situation. So why does he say that? Why does he say, Behold, I'm about to die? Maybe that's what he feels like, but this is just an example of his carelessness and exaggeration. In reality, he's just craving that red stew. He has a desire that is overpowering him that he wants to fulfill. He feels like he's going to die without that stew. This is just an example of the kind of character that dominates Esau's life. He is one given to passion, to appetite, to impulsiveness. He's another negative example in our passage. You don't want to be like Esau. What about Jacob? Was Jacob right? Was Jacob wise to take advantage of his brother and his brother's short-sighted craving? Well, in one sense, what Jacob does is very shrewd. It's quite amazing. You got the birthright from your brother for a bowl of stew? 
and a boy. Yeah, but that's a little bit of worldly thinking. Because was was what Jacob did loving or righteous? No, not in the least. This is a craftiness, a crafty unkindness that does not honor God. And it has this kind of behavior, it has a way of biting one in the end. Especially because the God who is, he frequently allows people to feel the consequences of their evil. Jacob may have obtained a birthright, and Esau might not care now, but he will care later. Esau will care later, and he will blame Jacob for taking advantage of him. And he will come to hate Jacob and want to kill Jacob. That's not going to turn out very well for Jacob. So crafty, but unkind, and really unwise. But this leads to another question. If Jacob is so crafty and unkind, why does God choose Jacob? Why does God choose Israel and not the Edomites? And let's face it, Jacob's not exactly winning any points with God here. After all, he's the younger, he's not the older. Though he does value the Abrahamic blessing and birthright, he's going to prove, as he's already starting to prove, to be a very annoying, crafty, self-reliant person. We'll see later on. Jacob will deceive his own father. He'll take advantage of his brother twice. He'll supplant his brother twice. He'll deceive Laban, his father-in-law. He'll have four wives. His sons will commit murder and kidnapping. Three. Jacob is a guy with huge faults and problems. So why Jacob? God, why pick Jacob and his descendants? This would be a, fa- this would be a question that the Israelites, too, would have to face. But what is the answer? What does the answer have to be? It has to be because God willed it to be good. God chooses to do whatever he chooses to do. He has mercy on people that is not based on merit. This is something we've already seen with the choice between Isaac and Ishmael, right? It wasn't the oldest that God chose. But God said, I'm going to set my love. I'm going to set my blessing. I'm going to make my covenant with Isaac and not Ishmael. And now he's also chosen Jacob and not Esau. He has the right to do this. And this is why Paul observes what he does based on this account in Genesis. You probably know that famous section of Romans 9. Go ahead and turn there, actually. Keep keep your finger in Genesis 25, but go to Romans 9, where Paul makes some comments on this passage. Verses 10 to 16, Romans 9, Paul has just noted how God chose Isaac over Ishmael. And then he says this about Rebekah and Jacob and Esau. Romans 9, verses 10 to 16. And not only this, but there is Rebekah also, and she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand not because of works but because of him who calls it was said to her the older will serve the younger just as it is written jacob i loved but esau i hated by the way that comes from malachi what shall we say then there's no injustice with god is there may it never be for he says to moses i will have mercy on whom i have mercy 
and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. You see, this prophecy of the twins, you can turn back to Genesis now. This prophecy of the twins is more, more proof in the scriptures that God is completely sovereign and that any blessing or salvation received from God is an undeserved gift. It's undeserved mercy. And as we've said before, this is a wonderful truth because it means that no person is beyond God's ability to save or bless or give eternal life. But it also means that if you are such a person or if you want to be such a person, you must remember that it is nothing that you bring to God. It is not based on any merit. You cannot earn God's salvation or blessing. And if you have it, it was a gift from God. That's what many other scriptures say, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by faith, by grace, through faith that we are saved. And this is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one will boast. God is showing, even in Genesis, look, this is the way I am. This is the way I work. I show mercy to those who don't deserve it. Jacob is someone who did not deserve it. And you know what? So are you. So are all of us who are in Christ. We can see a lot of parallels between Jacob and ourselves, actually. Be like, oh, Jacob, you're so annoying. We're not that different from Jacob many times. So thankfully, God's not done with us, as he's not done with Jacob. He sanctifies us, and we ought to progress in sanctification. But we got to realize that we're in the same boat as Jacob. We did not deserve God's grace. This leads us to the most central question that we want to deal with in our passage, and that is, what is the main point? What is Moses wanting to communicate to us primarily in the Spirit of God? I'd actually say there are a couple of main points kind of all working together. Three main points from this passage. First, this is written to explain to Israel their origin and the origin of the Edomites. You know, the book of Genesis is very much about origins. And the people of Israel, they would need to know where they came from. And they would need to know where the Edomites came from and the other peoples of the land that would be around them. Where did the conflict come from? Where the bad blood between the Edomites and the Israelites, where did that come from? It goes back. It goes back to ancient days, God explains. In fact, this is still true for us. You look at the world and you say, man, why are things like this? Why are peoples like this? Why are they in such conflict? It goes back a long way. The key to understanding so many of the realities that we deal with today, it goes back to the book of Genesis. So this is very helpful for us to actually understand how to live in the world. We've got to understand where things come from. God's explaining that here. So this is the second purpose, and it's one I've already alluded to, and that is to provide some negative examples for Israel to learn from. People that you're not to be like Israel. Esau is number one negative example here, but also Isaac and Jacob to a lesser extent. They're all negative examples here of people who acted without faith in God to secure short-term benefit for themselves. This is the negative example that Israel and we were to learn from. Isaac cared more about food than God's will for his children. Jacob cared more about obtaining his birthright or obtaining the birthright by any means necessary rather than trusting God and loving his brother. God would have given Jacob the birthright. But Jacob said, I have to obtain it 
even if it means being unkind. But Esau, of course, he takes the cake. He's the poster child of the one who most obviously sacrifices God's blessing for short-term gratification. And this is why the writer of Hebrews picks up on Esau as an example for Christians to learn from today. Hebrews 12, you don't have to turn there. Hebrews 12, verses 14 to 17. The writer of Hebrews says this. Hebrews 12, 14 to 17. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Do you know that even after her, afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. I remember the situation of the book of Hebrews. The recipients of the book of Hebrews were under pressure to abandon Christ, just find comfort and safety in the world and in Judaism. It was safer there. But the writer of Hebrews presents Esau as an example to them. He says, don't turn to short-term gratification. Don't turn to godlessness or immorality. Don't give up the blessings of Christ for passing pleasure and sin. Don't throw away your birthright for single fleeting and ultimately unsatisfying meal. Israel needed to learn this truth. They would be a people constantly put under pressure as they follow God into the promised land and do war with the people of the land to obtain the land. But we also need to learn because we are under pressure too. The temptation of the flesh, the temptation of the world, the temptation of, the, of, of Satan to, in many different ways, give up your birthright for a single meal. We're to learn. We're to learn of the folly of Esau. But there is another purpose, and it's, I think, the most important purpose of all in this passage. And that is to remind us of God's faithful sovereignty. Right, we saw that in the beginning of the passage, and we see it in the latter part. There are a lot of moving pieces to what we see here when it comes to fulfilling God's sovereign plan. We've got Isaac. He's trying to avoid God's will. Esau doesn't care about God's will. And Jacob's trying to fulfill God's will by sinful means. Well, what's the result? God's will was accomplished still exactly as God intended. Yes, God even uses and ordains, mysteriously, sin and folly and ignorance to bring about his perfect plan at the perfect time. God didn't look at the situation with Jacob and Esau and be like, oh yeah, let me see what I can salvage here. No, this unfolded exactly as God will. Now, God never causes someone to sin. He never absolves man of his responsibility to be obedient and trusting of God. But note the great lesson from this passage. God will be faithful to his promises no matter what. No one will thwart God, not even you, not even your sin, not even the sin of other people. Now, this should have been an encouragement to Israel because they would need to rely on God's promises in so many ways as they marched to take the land of Canaan. But again, it's one of the most basic lessons that we also need to learn. Believe God. Trust in his faithful sovereignty. Everything's under his control. You see a circumstance, you say, oh, God's promise surely cannot come to pass now. God says, 
Look at what I did with Jacob and Esau. It came to pass. Their sin was no roadblock to it. We're going to be put in high-pressure situations in which we are tempted to doubt the promises of God. But we need to remember what this passage is teaching us. Of course, this truth is to lead us to obedience, not disobedience. Not to say to ourselves, well, God's will is going to be accomplished no matter what. Then why do I need to be serious about sin? If God wants to bless me, he'll bless me. No, don't try to test God like that. Everybody who tries to test God's promises like that in scripture, they they don't do well after this. They experience some pretty painful chastening. And some of them, God says, you're going to presume on me? I'm going to let you go off to destruction. Your indifference, your carelessness is actually the reason that you will not see salvation. We get exactly what we want. God says, let my sovereign faithfulness, let my open kindness draw you to me, not become an excuse for you to turn from me. So we've observed the passage. We've interpreted the passage with some very important questions. But we're not done until we get to step three of our method, which, of course, is application. How is this to work out in our lives? How are we to be transformed by this passage? We've already broached this topic, but let me now put it to you in the form of some specific questions. Things for you to think about. Where are you failing to trust in the faithfulness of God? I know we live in this world that different temptations, circumstances come up. We're we're moved to not trust God. We're tempted to not trust God. Where is that for you? Where are you failing to trust the faithfulness of God in your life? How can that change? How can your mind be reformed, refreshed, cleansed with the truth? How can you act now in your life? What decisions can you make that can keep the actual truth of Scripture in mind? What will trusting in God look like in your situation? This is something for you to think about. Another question. Are you grateful to God for your undeserved salvation? Like I said, we're actually a lot like Jacob. And we've been like Esau many times. Yet God has been so gracious to us. Jesus Christ has been so gracious to us. He saved us. He accomplished all the work of redemption for us. He is the fulfillment of what God was doing even in those ancient days. And are we grateful for that? Do we love the Lord for that? Do we treat it of no account? Kind of like Esau? Eh, what's the birthright to me? If we do, do, does our life reflect it? Do we walk worthy of the salvation calling with which we've been called, as Ephesians says? Are we, like the psalmist, just so eager to praise God in the public assembly? Are we grateful? Something for you to think about. And then one more question here. Where are you tempted to give up your spiritual birthright for a bowl of stew? I think this picture of what Esau did is really instructive for us. Because this is what sin is. It's that bowl of stew. It's that red stew. 
looks like it's gonna be so great, so satisfying, but you gotta give up a birthright to get it. You gotta make a terrible exchange. It's one you'll come to regret later. And in many ways we know this, but keep on being tempted not to believe it. So where is that true for you in your life? Where are you tempted to give up your birthright for a bowl of stew? Where are you tempted to sacrifice the joy of walking with Christ for some passing pleasure? Or even more seriously, where are you tempted to risk your everlasting salvation for some sin habit? You know, the scriptures are pretty sobering many times where they describe characters who who clinged to certain things like immorality, kingship, the favor of the world, and they lost everlasting life. Think of the rich young ruler, right? Jesus says, sell all you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. You'll have treasure with me. But it says he went away sad. He had great wealth. He didn't want to give it up. How foolish. He was just being like Esau. And that would be the same for any of us. If we want to cling to some treasure of the world, some pride, some sin, I'm making a worse exchange than Robert Wayne made. Even a worse exchange than Esau made. I mean, the birthright was a pretty big deal, but that was still on the earth. What about for those things that go beyond the earth? Your own soul. Jesus says, what profit does a man receive if he obtains the whole world? Yet forfeits his soul. Just like a bowl of stew. I urge you. The scripture urges you. God urges you. To hang on to your birthright. Hang on to your blessing. Hang on to joy and satisfaction in the Lord. By saying no to sin. By saying I will trust God. I will combat this with scripture. I'll remind myself and others of what the truth is. So I don't go after that. That's what Jesus did in the wilderness, right? In the scriptures, that's what he uses as a weapon against Satan. So I urge you to consider these questions as we end today. That's all I have for you. Questions about what you've heard. Any questions about what you see in this passage or what you've heard me say today? Okay, then, if you think of any questions or you have a, a comment you'd like to share with me, definitely email me. You know, I send out the Sunday little emails, and you can just reply to that. But that's it for this week. We're not done with Jacob and Esau yet. This is just the first part of their little saga. Next week, we look at how Esau is supplanted again, this time with Jacob stealing the blessing. We'll talk about what we can learn from that and what God was accomplishing through that next time. Let's close in prayer. Oh God, you are the Lord. You are the truth. You are treasure. Lord, we have some wonderful, wonderful lessons from this passage we are to learn. We see the world. We see why the world is the way it is. We see, God, the folly of short-sightedness, making these worthless exchanges but God, we also see your faithfulness, your kind and merciful faithfulness through it all. And you've shown that to us, for those of us who are in Christ. And we're so grateful for that. But Lord, how many times have we acted just like Esau? 
Lord, help us to learn, to fundamentally learn and progress. God, you, your will for your people is that they not remain as they are, but proceed onward to forget what is behind and look forward to what is ahead, to strive for the prize that is in you. You are our life. All joy in life is in you. So God, I pray that the people of Calvary and anyone listening today, that they would progress, that they would be transformed fundamentally by what your word says here. God, you have called us to obedience. You called us to be transformed by your word. So I pray that they would. And I pray that I would. God. I pray that we would know more of the joy of walking with you. And Lord, that we would cling tightly to the reward that is to come, that we taste in part now, but that we know is coming. Lord Jesus, we look forward to sharing that reward in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You're welcome. And I'll see you next time. Thank you.